Good morning, Northridge Church. Welcome home. I made it. <laughs> Woo, Webster is far away. Oh, man, I never drove so fast. Uh, listen, just want to get one question out of the way. Yes, I do all my own stunts. But... Uh, well, you saw up on the screen that I have absolutely nothing prepared this morning, so I just thought we could spend some time reading some of my favorite passages from The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Bible. I, do you know how awkward it is to, as a pastor to walk into a public library and check out The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Bible? Whew. Well, listen. <clears throat> What, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I know that's such a cliched question, but it is so crystal clear in my head. I wanted to be an astronaut. I grew up during the Cold War space race. I remember the moon landing. I was seven years old. I was sitting on the carpet in our living room, uh, right up against the screen of our big Zenith console color TV. I don't think, no one's old enough to remember those. In my memory, it's the size of a coffin, okay? But uh, sat in front of that thing, I was allowed to stay up late. And at 10.56 p.m., Sunday, July 20th, 1969, I watched Neil Armstrong climb down that ladder, hop off the last step and kick up dust on the moon. And I was totally hooked. From then on, I was obsessed with all things space. I made model rockets and launched them. I went to the library, read every book I could find on the solar system. I went to the planetarium. My, my friend <clears throat> had a telescope, and I remember looking through his telescope and seeing, for the first time with my own eyes, the rings of Saturn. But then I found out that I had a cavity and all my world collapsed because I remembered that NASA astronauts, there was a requirement. One of the requirements was no cavities. Seriously, because they didn't know how they would hold up with the cabin pressurizing, depressurizing. So one trip to the dentist and my dream died. <clears throat> So I picked another dream. I would be a scientist. I loved science and math. I read science fiction. I watched Star Trek. I was going to be a PhD in physics. I was going to get rich making stuff for defense contractors. I even got into MIT. Yes, I was going to be Tony Stark. <laughs> but, well, I got into MIT, so the dream was alive. And then I got my grades, and the dream died. <laughs> So, listen, I, there's something you need to know. I don't like letting people know that I went to MIT. Now, I know you don't believe me because I just told all of you that I went to MIT. But hear me out. Here are some of the friends that I went to school with. One of my friends um, became a Navy test pilot. Anyone seen Top Gun? <laughs> One of them is the chair of epidemiology at a major teaching hospital in Atlanta. He does cutting edge research in breast cancer. Uh, one went to Silicon Valley and by age 50, eh, he quit to coach his kids soccer teams because honestly, how much money do you need? One, seriously, was employee number 12 at Tesla. He went on to start companies of his own and now he races sailboats around the world. And finally, I had one friend. He went straight from MIT to Wall Street. He worked for Goldman Sachs. He met his wife there. He made partner there. His wife made partner there. And then Goldman Sachs went public, and they cashed out in their 40s. 
And with that money, they started philanthropic organizations to address injustice, to help marginalized people, especially marginalized women around the world. Oh, and well, he went to seminary, paid for it in cash, and then preached and taught in churches, I'm sure for free, because I forgot to tell you that even in school and today, he was and is a Christ follower. So back to why I'm not thrilled to let you know I went to MIT, because, spoiler alert, none of that happened for me, <laughs> okay? I mean, the conversation usually goes like this. Oh, man, you went to MIT? Dude, that is so cool. What are you doing here? I mean, comparison is cruel, my friends. I don't know why I do it, because it does not tickle. I mean, it usually hurts, and honestly, it makes me want to hide sometimes. And I don't know if that connects with any of you. I don't know if any of you had dreams that you pinned your hopes on, dreams that died. And you dusted yourself off, you picked another dream, and it disappointed too. And then you just started suffering the cruelty of comparison. I mean, is there another way to live, a, a, a way free of the striving, free of the comparing? Does Jesus show us another way? Well, I think we know that must be true. We just don't know how it's true. So let's take a look. So last week, we kicked off our summer hike through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Daniel led us through the first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And we learned last week that the price of admission to the kingdom of heaven is brokenness. But this week, we're going to study eight more verses. Two paragraphs, really, two four-verse paragraphs. And it seems like the point here is that the purpose of admission to the kingdom of heaven is perfection. So how can both of those be true? How can the kingdom be full of broken people and perfect people? Well, let's find out. Again, in this first paragraph, we learn that we are salt and light. Salt and light. Let's read. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So what's up with salt? I don't think anyone dreamed of growing up to be salt. I mean, Jesus says we're salt, but what's that about? So, well, usually when scholars talk about salt, they talk about flavor and preservation. So salt brings flavor. We know this, right? I mean, there are a few things that, don't they just taste so much better with a little salt on them? I mean, think of that buttery corn on the cob. Um, my son, my youngest son, my dearly beloved son, on Father's Day, he came to the house after work. He's a baker at Country Club of Rochester, and he brought to me from the kitchen two slabs of prime rib. Oh, it was so good. It had the au jus on the side. It had the cup of horseradish sauce, and heat those babies up and put a little salt on them. Oh, so good. So salt brings flavor. But salt isn't awesome on its own, right? No one says, hey, let me have some more salt. Sorry, that was a little more than I expected. <laughs> salt brings flavor. But in the ancient, and so when we're in a culture, we should bring flavor to that culture. We should make that culture better. But the real superpower 
of salt in the ancient world was preservation. Obviously, they didn't have refrigerators, so stuff went bad pretty fast, but they found out if they could put a little salt and rub it into their meat, it would prevent rot. It would hold off decay. So if we are salt in a community, we should be holding back some of the rot, right? The cancer shouldn't spread quite so fast, and maybe we can even keep it in remission. But Jesus also warns us that there's a way to blow it. There is a way, if we fail to be that preservative of good in a society, then we lose our saltiness. Okay, time out. All you nerdy nerds out there are saying, how can salt lose its saltiness, right? I mean, it's NaCl, sodium chloride, it's a chemical compound. I mean, I went down my tea. But, <laughs> all right, you knew that already. I know, I know, whatever. But how does salt stop being salt? Well, again, in the ancient world, they didn't go to the grocery store to buy their iodized salt. They went to the salt marshes, and they scooped that salt out of the marsh. And of course, when you scoop that salt out of the marsh, you don't just get salt. You get a lot of other, well, crud that's part of it, right? So that salty crud, that could, the salt could get washed out of that, and then it became useless. Well, it did have one use. You could throw it up on the rooftop. They had dirt rooftops that they had barbecues on up there. I, I, maybe they didn't have barbecues, but I would totally have a barbecue up there. Maybe grill up some prime rib. But uh, did I tell you about my son? My dearly beloved son. But, uh, anyway, I'm distracted. But that soil roof, they'd throw that crud up there, which would help pack in the dirt. And it would be trodden underfoot. In fact, that word, to lose its saltiness, that word is also, uh, can also mean to make or become foolish. So when we don't live out the kingdom in obedience to him, we, we, we become foolish. We get mocked. We get stepped on. Uh, in my college days, my fraternity days, uh, there were times that I became a fool. In fact, I had started trying to live a testimony for Jesus. But later I started to go to parties and I would start to drink and then I would drink a lot and I would get drunk often. And at one point, my fraternity brothers started to say, you remember when Brad was all Christian? Now he just gets drunk like the rest of us. I had lost my saltiness. I had become a fool. And they didn't just mock me, they mocked Christians, they mocked Jesus. Honestly, we would have been better off if no one had known I was a follower of Jesus. Now that was 40 years ago, and I, I still regret it. Um, and I would just say for any you know, young person heading out on their own for the first time, if you want to be salt in the world, I would urge you to tag team uh, with other Christians. Don't lose your saltiness, don't become a fool. Well, let's, let's keep reading. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So, if salt is holding back the bad, then light is pushing forward the good. So I have in my hand here a handful of light. Okay, I, Anyone want to see what 4,000 lumens looks like? Uh, let's bring down the house lights. Can we do that? Let's see what happens here. So we get boom. Is that pretty bright? I'll try to shine it right in people's eyes. Okay. 
It's good, huh? I have no idea what Webster or online is seeing, so let's just go straight to them, huh? <laughs> Boom. <laughs> All right, we can bring the house lights up. So really, there are two ways to use light, right? We either use light to see or to be seen. So if I was in a dark forest, I would love having this thing because this would totally light my path. I would have no trouble seeing what I needed to see. But light is also to be seen, right? If I was adrift, lost, stranded at sea, and I knew there was a search and rescue helicopter a few miles off, and I had this flashlight, if I pointed it over there, I might not see the helicopter, but the helicopter would see me and have no trouble finding me. And that's the use of light that's here. Jesus is talking about our light gets seen by others. We're not even aware of how many others see it, but they see it, and, they, and that light is really our good deeds, and they, they glorify our Father in heaven. So let me give you an example from church history that kind of illustrates that. There were two great plagues that covered the Roman world in the early years of Christianity. And Kenneth Burning writes, during the second epidemic, uh, around 251, Bishop Dionysius described events in Alexandria. At the first onset of the disease, the pagans pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. So this is a truly horrible scene. I mean, this pandemic is so terrifying, so deadly, that people are leaving loved ones behind while they're still alive just to try to escape. But Christians, Christians moved in the opposite direction. He goes on to say, Christians met the obligation to care for the sick rather than desert them, and thereby saved enormous numbers of lives. It is entirely plausible that Christian nursing would have reduced mortality by as much as two-thirds. So as horrible and devastating as this pandemic was, if the Christians had not intervened, the body count would have been three times as high. Why would Christians do this? Why would they risk their own lives moving towards these people? They're not family. I mean, strangers, maybe even people that oppose them. Well, the Roman world took notice and Christianity exploded. And I can't think of a better example of let your good, lead, let your good deeds you know, shine before men so they may glorify your Father in heaven. Now, we're going to see in coming weeks that there are, we can do good deeds that really aren't good deeds. Why? Because they bring glory to us. They're really showing off. But when we do something that doesn't benefit us, that doesn't boost our brand, but it actually costs us, it hurts us, it humiliates us, well, those are the kinds of deeds that glorify our Father. I mean, that's why I love our Beyond Ministry. Our Beyond Ministry is always looking for partners, uh, both locally, outside the walls of our church, and around the world where we can meet needs in the name of Jesus. So this first paragraph says we are salt and light. This per first paragraph says the kingdom of heaven is possible. Um, it's present tense, present fact. Here it is. I that broken people can somehow be a blessing to the world. Let's keep reading. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to 
fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Do not think that I have come to abolish. Now why would we think that Jesus had come to abolish the law? Well, probably because last week Daniel started letting all these broken people in, right? I mean, all these people who've been held at a distance before, the broken people who didn't measure up, well, Jesus must be throwing out the rule book, right? He's got to be lowering the bar. I mean, no entrance exam. Come on in. Everyone gets in. But Jesus doesn't throw out the rule book. He doesn't throw out the Bible. Jesus doubles down on the Bible. So let's keep reading. Therefore, Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's not saying that those religious leaders are bad. He's saying they aren't good Enough. Wait, why? We, our righteousness has to be better than the Pharisees? I mean, that's impossible. How can anyone get into the kingdom of heaven? So this paragraph seems to say the kingdom of heaven is impossible. The standard is sky high. It is perfection. Last week, Daniel said broken people get in. This week, only perfect people get in. Which is it? Well, one skeptical, one skeptical scholar even says that verse 3 which we read last week, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, And verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. They stand opposite each other in flat contradiction. There's no way for both these verses to be true. But another scholar pumps the brakes a little bit. And he says, well, verse 20 does not establish how the righteousness is to be gained. It only lays out the demand. We need righteousness. But how do we get it? We're losers, remember? Well, let's back up a little. So this paragraph started with, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Okay, fine. We're not burning the whole thing down. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So one... When Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, don't just think law, don't just think rules. He's talking about all of scripture, okay? The law, the prophets, the poets, the Psalms, all all the crazy stories in there, the law and the prophets, all of scripture. And two, when he says fulfill, fulfill doesn't mean that Jesus just doesn't have a criminal record. No jaywalking, no speeding tickets, you know, just perfect. You know, well, he is, he is perfect. He did keep the law, but that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that everything that came before, all the sacrifices, all the sins, all the rebellions, all this teaching, all the revivals, all the screwing up again, even all the beauty in, in the scriptures that we can't really explain that everything, without Jesus, it's illogical. Without Jesus, it's unfixable. But with Jesus, it makes sense. It all fits. We have purpose. We have an answer to the wrongs and a path to what is right. So can I also suggest this? Not only is Jesus complete scripture, but Jesus completes 
history. Galatians 4.4 says, but when the fullness, I'm sorry, (laughs) but when the set time had fully come, there are other translations that say, but when the fullness of time had come. So when everything in history, the fullness of time had come, the whole stage was prepared. God sent his son. Without Jesus, history doesn't make any sense. It's full of despair. It's full of unanswered injustices. But everything, all of what went before, it creates this, this puzzle where the last piece is Jesus. All right? <laughs> Jesus completes scripture. Jesus completes history. I'm going to give you one more. Uh, it is said that inspiration is that point in time where your past suddenly makes sense. I know if this has happened to you. Does your past confuse you? Mine confuses me. I mean, what is the point of all the screw-ups, of all the addictions, the broken relationships, the striving to build something of significance that never works out? What is the point of all of that? But at some point, we bump into Jesus, and it all makes sense. And we know there was no other history we could have had that would bring us to the point where we were ready for, where we would ask for, where we'd be grateful for Jesus. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So there's that word completion again. Jesus completes scripture, history. He completes you. He completes me. So, Um, Scripture, world history, and my personal past, they all create a Jesus-shaped hole, okay? A hole that only Jesus can fill. So let's go back to this sacred paradox we find here this morning, right? This assertion that the kingdom is for the broken, the kingdom is only for the perfect. The only way for those two statements to both be true is Jesus, right? Let's look a little ahead in his sermon, Matthew 6, 33. Same Sermon on the Mount, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So the righteousness, we absolutely need the righteousness. It's just not up to us to provide it. It's a gift from our king. But not only is the righteousness non-negotiable, you see here, the kingdom is non-negotiable. Seek his righteousness, seek his kingdom. And there's no such thing as a kingdom without a king right? I mean, no one could imagine a kingdom that would at all be happy with people who came in whose highest priority was not to love, to honor, to serve, to obey the king. Um, Remember all those dreams I told you about? I mean, those dreams to be like an astronaut or a scientist. I mean, I didn't even mention my midlife crisis where I wanted to be an actor, but maybe you had some of those broken dreams too, Um, Well, where did those dreams come from? Were those dreams for your kingdom? Were they for my kingdom? Or were they for his kingdom? So, um, and all those things I wanted to be, I mean, they're not bad. There's nothing wrong with them. If God wants you to be an astronaut, then be salt and light in the space program. If he wants you to be a scientist, then make amazing discoveries that show how wonderful creation is and bring praise to the creator. If he wants you in the NBA or teaching a class or driving a truck or working in the hospital, if that's where he wants you to be, then be salt and light there. But how do we make his reign 
real in our lives. I mean, that's really the tension for me. Well, I think the secret is those two statements that we make around here all the time. If you've been here any length of time at all, you've seen baptisms, you've seen life change stories, and you've heard this statement, right? I am here today to publicly declare that Jesus is the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. I mean, we can hear the brokenness in that first statement. I mean, we're helpless, we're sinners. There's no other way than Jesus paying our debt on the cross. But I think life change, changing the world, I mean, that bubbles out of that second statement. Jesus is the leader of my life. Jesus is my king. I mean, we Americans, we we really hate that word, king. I mean, tomorrow's the 4th of July. We celebrate our independence. We fought a war to be rid of a king, right? We have no king but us, right? But I got to tell you, I mean, I am a tyrant. <laughs> My dreams are selfish. They're unsustainable. They're petty. And you know what the problem is? All you kings out there, all you greedy kings grasping for the same things I'm grasping for, all bumping into each other. Our kings, our kingdoms are really sad. But Matthew in his gospel, this, I mean, the whole gospel of Matthew is really about proving that Jesus is the promised king. I mean, that opening Opening chapter, he lets us know Jesus comes from the right bloodline. There are prophecies that point to him. He's baptized. The heavens open up, and God declares he is the one. And then he steps onto the stage. He's preaching. He's healing. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He's bringing a kingdom. He wants us to be part of that kingdom. But I think, you know, if we lean too hard into that first statement of seeking his forgiveness without really grabbing onto that second statement of making him our king, I, I wonder if we even really understand forgiveness. So let me illustrate it this way. So remember that story I told about losing my saltiness in college where I was partying and my faith had become a joke. So let's consider two brads. I mean, let's go back to that story because frankly, I'd rather tell that one than stories that are less than 40 years old and a lot more painful. But back then, 40 years ago, two ways that Brad could respond. Scenario number one, I am humiliated. I don't know why I keep repeating this pattern over and over again and embarrassing myself at these parties. I'm the butt of jokes in my fraternity. I laugh along because I want to be a good sport about it. But I have no respect. And really, I stopped going to crew meetings because I'm tired of other Christians asking me, hey, Brad, I, how's it going sharing Christ with your fraternity? Hey, have you done a spiritual survey yet? And I would be mortified if people back home at Northridge learned about my behavior. All I want more than anything else is a do-over. I want to go back in time and reset. All right, let's consider a second reaction. Now, I am devastated. I try to pray, but I know I broke Jesus' heart. I, I imagine him being in the same room with me, and I just can't even bear to make eye contact with him. And 
my time at MIT, that was supposed to bring glory to God. I was supposed to advance the kingdom there. I was supposed to spread the gospel. And I kind of realize now I was really looking forward to taking some credit for that too. But my failure, it was a, it was a shock to me. It was devastating to me. But it was no news to Jesus. He, he knew this about me already. And still he loved me. And so I got to see how even more gracious he was, how even more patient he was, how even more loving he was. I I don't want a do-over because with a do-over, I never would have learned this humility. I never would have seen a little more of how loving and gracious my king is. I would not have been made a little more useful for his kingdom. You see, that first reaction of seeking forgiveness, you can be on a loop with that thing, just back and back, looking for a do-over, looking for a reset, looking for a clean slate. To do what? To get right back to pursuing my own dreams, my own goals. Or I could look, my reaction could be to do whatever it takes to restore that relationship with the king I love. We are the bride of Christ. And the Bible calls sin spiritual adultery. So when we sin, we cheat on him. We break his heart. And is that what breaks our heart, breaking his heart? Or are we just disgusted with the mess we made? You know, can Jesus really be my forgiver if he is not my king? Can Jesus really be my forgiver? without being my king. Am I grateful that that forgiveness he offers, that that's the way to repair a relationship with the king that I love. Because of that forgiveness, because of that gift of righteousness, I can change the world. I can advance his kingdom and not my own. Jeremiah 45, 5 I'm going to read it to you in the King James because I love how it sounds in the King James. It just does more work in my life in the King James. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. What are you seeking? What am I seeking? What am I seeking for myself? What glory am I eager to have? But Jesus tells us, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Let's make him our king. Would you stand with me? I'd like to close in prayer. And we don't usually stand, but you know that in the Gospels, whenever Jesus taught to the crowds, the crowds all stood and Jesus sat down. So you're probably glad we don't do that every week, right? But uh, this morning I wanted to stand because if a king walked into a room stand, right? And I want to invite our King here today. Let's pray. King Jesus, we surrender our pathetic, sad, really ridiculous kingdoms to you. Why do we keep striving for these things? Lord, we know that you give good gifts like forgiveness and righteousness, and you give broken people, people with like us, people with nothing. You give us purpose and you give us the power fueled by gratitude to do good deeds that bring glory to you. Thank you, Lord. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Amen. Amen.